Our speaker this evening is Robert Schiller, who is the Sterling Professor of Economics in the Department of Economics and Cowles Foundation for Research in Economics at Yale University, and Professor of Finance and Fellow at the International Center for Finance at Yale School of Management. Professor Schiller received his bachelor's degree from the University of Michigan and his PhD in economics from MIT, just across the river here. Um, in 2013, he was awarded the Nobel Prize in Economic Sciences jointly with Eugene Fama and Lars Peter Hansen. Professor Schiller writes on financial markets, financial innovation, behavioral economics, macroeconomics, real estate, statistical methods, and public opinions regarding markets. He authors the column Finance in the 21st Century for Project Syndicate and the column Economic View for the New York Times and has authored such books as Fishing for Fools, The Economics of Manipulation and Deception, Finance in the Good Society, Subprime Solution, How the Global Financial Crisis Happened and What to Do About It, and Irrational Exuberance, among others. He co-founded the firms Case Schiller Weiss, Inc., and Macro Markets LLC, and has served as Vice President and President of the American Economic Association, and as President of the Eastern Economic Association. And a programming note uh, that Professor Schiller's lecture here this evening is the first in a series that explores our understanding of the American, how our understanding of the American dream, how it is shaped and reinforced or negated. Uh, please join us on March 1st for the next lecture in the series, which is Exodus from Dixie, The Great Migration as a Social Movement by Professor of American Studies, Davarian Baldwin. Tonight, Professor Schiller will discuss how the concept of the American dream has changed over time and the dangers of conflating it with the dream of owning a spacious home. Please join me in welcoming Professor Robert Schiller to the Boston Athenaeum. Okay. Thank you. So, I first want to uh, dedicate my talk today to my f former colleague, Carl Case, or Chip Case, who uh, worked with me developing home price indices. We founded a firm here in the Boston area, Case Schiller Weiss Incorporated. Uh, and uh, he unfortunately passed away a year and a half ago. Uh, and I have here Susie Case, uh, his wife. Uh, so I, I, we were just talking, Susie and I, uh, about uh, Chip and what he was like. Uh, and then at some point I said, this is the first. Uh, I've never given a talk standing between two nudes before. <laughs> and then I, then I said, but I, I wouldn't say that here. And she said, yes, do it. <laughs> that, that would be Chip Case. So um, Chip and Susie were uh, the most kind and generous people I know. Uh, and it's been an inspiration uh, for me. I went to a retirement party for Chip some years ago, and I was struck at, that the Wellesley students, he was a professor at Wellesley College, 
were genuinely lamenting his uh, re retirement because uh, I think they were good people. So what I'm talking about today is about good people again, and it's the American dream. Uh, but first, I just want to show you... Uh, uh, that's Chip. Uh, there. That's me. I don't know if you can remember. Kind of a funny picture. This is a selfie. <laughs> and this is uh, Ann Kinsella, who's also here, who is uh, uh, the co-author uh, on a couple of our papers on the housing market. So um, what I want to talk about today is, is related to the housing market, but it, it's, it's deeper. It's about our values and principles uh, and what motivates us. So uh, I'm going to talk about... I'm glad that I'm the first in the series on American Dream because I'm kind of defining it and putting it in historical concept, context. Uh, the term American Dream very clearly was coined in a book called uh, The Epic of America by James Truslow Adams in 1931. I'll show you evidence on that. You might think that they've always said American Dream. Not so. Uh, I'm going to talk about the Canada dream, the China dream, la rêve Francais, and the Russian dream. All of them are derivative from the American dream. I can establish that too. Uh, there are more. There's an Australian dream and uh, I don't know what else. Uh, but we, we have the, well, not China dream. China is so ancient. Maybe they started this, but we'll come back to that. Uh, but I want to talk about two transformations since 1931. Uh, the first transformation was as the decades went by, we kind of forgot about James Truslow Adams, and we thought that he was talking about the American dream is a big house. And so it became materialistic as time went by. Uh, so, uh, and that relates, as I'll argue, to what actually happens in housing markets. Markets. The, the dream matters. Uh, the second transformation is much more recent. Well, it's not exactly all recent, but it's been going on for a long time, but it's gotten more intense. That uh, we're fearful for the American dream because of fear about inequality, loss of jobs to foreigners, and above all, machines that replace people. So the American dream is in danger. That's the outline. Part of the background for this talk is the talk I gave a year ago. This is actually very different, but it's on the same theme. I was president of the American Economic Association, and one of the obligations at the end of the one-year presidency was to give a, a, address the membership of the American Economic Association. So I gave my talk. I entitled it Narrative Economics. The idea that I was promoting is that economics should be more like other social sciences, or move a little bit in that direction. Other social sciences recognize the importance of popular narratives in driving history. Narratives are stories, especially stories connected with theories about the way the world works, and they're contagious. Uh, uh, the idea goes back at least to Gustave Le Bon in 1895 in his book, The Crowd. Ideas, sentiments, emotions, that's what I'm reading, and beliefs possess in crowds a contagious power as intense as that of microbes. Then Richard Dawkins wrote, 
he renames them, he calls them memes. That's another name for idea microbe. Uh, and uh, uh, thought viruses is another term. Uh, so I have a, a couple of examples. One of them is the panicking you just saw in the stock market. Why did that happen? Was it just because of some new information about the level of interest rates? That was, that was one version of the story. The Fed is going to raise interest rates because the economy is looking strong. Well, I'd say that's part of the story, but there's something else happening. It's observing each other panicking, thinking, is this it? Are we getting out? And there were stories being told about people. Uh, that, was a, that was a narrative that helped make that happen. I'll give you one other example. It was the, this, the horrible shooting that we just saw at a high school in the United States. But you may notice, it's been remarked many times, that there's more and more and more of these shootings. Why? Well, I think, again, it's a narrative. It's a narrative that doesn't appeal to most of us, but it appeals to some people. It's the narrative of the lone shooter that outsmarted everyone else, was able to kill a lot of people. I don't find that at all appealing, and you would probably don't either, but it's appealing to somebody, and, and it's contagious, and it spreads. That's the problem. It's not... Uh, well, there's many dimensions to the problem, but I would emphasize that one. So I think the American dream is another narrative. We have to understand it in terms of the contagion. Uh, so the, 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 the key idea of contagion is to model these things as, uh, as epidemics, as in medicine. What I'm trying to ask is that we have to not only be more like, we economists have not only to be more like other social scientists, we also have to learn something from the medical school. And epidemiology, they build mathematical models of epidemics over there in the med school. And one of the parameters of the model is the contagion rate. So a disease, well, let's, let's talk about influenza now. The disease influenza has a contagion rate. It's, the it's related to the probability if you meet another person with influenza. I hope you're all washing your hands regularly now. <laughs> but it, you shake hands with someone who has influenza, and there's a, there's a certain probability that you'll get it. And this is behind the contagion rate. There's also a recovery rate so that people get over it. The contagion rate has to be higher than the recovery rate, or it won't form into an epidemic. You understand? It'll be dying out faster than it's increasing. It's if something tips the contagion rate up just a little bit so that it's above the recovery rate, then the whole epidemic suddenly explodes. That's why influenza tends to be in the fall or winter, because it, people are together more and something different about contagion. So it just explodes at that time of the year, and then it fades away. So epidemics tend to go a hump-shaped pattern. They start out very small, but growing rapidly, and then they rise for a while, and then they come back down. So that's my model for uh, the American dream as well. Uh, 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 and my model for, social, for economists is that we might think about that kind of dynamics more than we do. Um, so I like to plot, I, I like to, we, we, also we live in big data up here, so we can do searches on the internet. There's certain tools like Google Ngrams that allows you to search books and make a plot through time of how much a certain phrase was used. And there's lots of other databases that uh, you can now search. 
I think this is going to be a big, it's going to have a big impact on the way social sciences are. It's already having an impact, but I'd say it hasn't really reached its pinnacle yet. We're going to see a lot more research about how ideas and stories spread. The stories have to have a, in order to be contagious, they have to have a certain spark, a certain human interest typically, uh, a certain sense of relevance, and then they can just explode into a huge epidemic. And that's what I'm thinking has happened with the American dream. Uh, so I did, uh, th here's something that you, if you haven't been onto this, uh, it's a nice tool to gain understanding of the world. Google Ngrams. Uh, it's free. What it does is uh, they have books uh, from around the uh, early 1500s until 2008 uh, cataloged digitally, and you can search for phrases. And it will give you, it will print out this, this plot, which shows the uh, frequency. Uh, it's actually the, the total count for each year of the mentions of whatever phrase you entered divided by all the words published in all the books in that year, okay? Uh, so uh, I searched uh, on engrams for American Dream uh, back to 1750, or actually back to 1800. Uh, it gets noisy before 1800, because there weren't many, they don't have as many books, so I like to start at 1800. Uh, and you can see where the American Dream, it's, uh, it's like a growth phase of an epidemic. Right? Uh, it started in uh, 1931, uh, and then it's just uh, exploding ever since. Now, th this will eventually, I predict, be hump-shaped. It's going to go up for a while, and then it's going to start going down. Maybe I shouldn't say that. I'm a patriotic American. <laughs> but it won't be entirely, you, you can't try, you have to read carefully with Engram, because I'll just think of another word for it. So. Uh, uh, I'll come back to that about other words for it. Uh, so where did it come from? This man, uh, James Truslow Adams, wrote a book in 1931 called The Epic of America. And he repeatedly uses the term American dream in that book. So all of my searches for American dream basically start with 1931. N not exactly because the words American dream were occasionally used. Uh, and uh, it, it wasn't with this meaning at all. Uh, that could be between two sentences. One sentence would end, and this is American, period. Dream like, you know what I'm saying. It was just uh, random. But the, it really started in 1931 with this man. So what is the American dream according to the originator of the term? It is a dream of a land in which life should be better and richer and fuller for every man. He doesn't use uh, gender-free language there. Yeah, but come up, wait a minute. With opportunity for each according to his ability or achievement. But then later on, he redeems himself. <laughs> it is not a dream of motor cars and high wages merely, but a dream of a social order in which each man and each woman shall be able to attain to the fullest stature of which they are innately capable and recognized by others for what they are. Um, so what he's... But by the way, he never mentions houses. It never mentions it. It's dream of a motor car uh, in 19... They, they didn't have a single... Many people didn't even have any car, not alone two or three cars. Um, so uh, 
That's his uh, definition. So he, um, so what it is, it, it's, it's kind of like, uh, it sounds like it's been around a long time because it's the American ideal that we judge people by what they do, not th their pedigree or uh, uh, status as an aristocrat or royalty. We're not like that. And, and uh, Alexis de Tocqueville commented on this when he came. He said it was, I'm not quoting him exactly. Remember the Frenchman who came to the United States in the 1830s? And somewhere in there, he's, he's, I should have gotten it for this, but he said that it was refreshing to him that nobody was judging him. There was no prejudice against him because of, nobody asked whether he was noble or not. They just judged him as a person. Uh, so I think there's some truth to this, but it didn't have this name. By the way, I looked through this book for a discussion of what it says about blacks in America, and it's just about nothing. Uh, but another thing about American Dream, it sounds like it's a, when you say dream, it sounds like it's a wish for the future. Like we Americans have had this dream of a society that treats everyone fairly and equally. Well, we still have slavery, but we kind of knew that was on its way out and we're going to move forward. So it, it allows you to be proud of your country, even though they had slavery. That's my interpretation. So let me just go back. He died in 1949. Where did his term? That's 1949. The poor guy never lived to see what a revolution he caused. Uh, he set something that had a low but steady contagion rate. And it's not like the influenza epidemic that grows in one season and then drops off. This thing is still growing. So he found something that, uh, that was really powerful and uh, in an epidemic sense, not, you know, I, I'm, I'm a little bit cynical about what happens in epidemics. It, it's not always a good idea. This looks like a good idea to me. But I, one thing I didn't put in my slide that I was just thinking, Martin Luther King gave a famous speech called, I Have a Dream. Remember that? If you go back and read his speech, he is clearly referring to James Truslow Adams. It's the American dream. It's the dream of black people in America as well. Uh, okay. He wrote this in the Great Depression. In 1931, this was actually when the re re depression was deepening, and you might think that people are pessimistic. Uh, he tried to make this as an inspiration. A lot of people were trying to talk in inspiring terms, like President Hoover, for example. President Hoover would keep saying that the depression will end any day now, and they became a laughing stock as it kept getting worse. Adams didn't predict an end to the, but he said we have a dream, and it was somehow powerful language that, uh, that still uh, persists. Uh, I wanted to liken it, another piece of literature um, by um, Israel Zangwell is a little bit older. Uh, he coined the term the melting pot. Now actually, if you search on melting pot, it goes way back. But back in 1800, they were talking about literally melting pots. <laughs> they would say, if you want to make a silver thing, you first throw the silver into the melting pot. That's sort of a sentence. But Zangwell wrote a play uh, in 1908 
that was performed, and Teddy Roosevelt, former president, was in the audience. And Teddy Roosevelt loved the play, according to the newspaper account. Uh, but it's about America as a place where a thousand mammoth feeders from the ends of the world pour in their human fate. Ah, what a stirring and seething Celtan, Latin, Slav, and Teuton, Greek and Syrian, black and yellow. It's, it's a story of merging into one country. But I don't think it has quite the poignance of American dream. Uh, it, just, it just sounds like it's a, a melting, a melding, rather, rather than an inspiration. So there was something powerful about Adam's words. So here's an engrams count for a number of terms. American dream, melting pot, land of opportunity, American spirit. Oh, there's a couple more that I should have put on. American character, American principles. Those were, I, I should have put them on. Those were fairly strong in the 19th century. But you can see American dream just rose and rose and became the leading of the, all of them. American spirit, uh, or land of opportunity. America, both of those are hump-shaped. They're long epidemics, uh, and they've been replaced. We like the sound of American dream better than land of opportunity, although they're kind of similar. It, it, American dream is kind of spiritual, isn't it? It's about uh, our deepest longing. It sounds like it. So it, it's a wonderful choice of word. And you wonder why it wasn't ever used before 1931. Um, oh, by the way, it was. This is one thing that came up in uh, Engram's search. <laughs> The, all, our famous American dream bed spring uh, for, th uh, yes, believe it or not, $13.50 new at some department store on the ninth floor. Uh, I, I also wonder if Adams was inspired by this, because this came one year before. His, so he was sleeping. He might have been sleeping on his American dream bed. <laughs> and then it affected him. Benjamin Franklin talked, it seemed to me, about American dream, but uh, doesn't call it that. But there's something, con there's some real content in this. So in uh, Boston Magazine, by the way, is that the same magazine? <laughs> I don't think so, right? In 1784, the Boston Magazine republished something that Ben Franklin had published in Europe, uh, an article entitled Information for Those Who Would Remove to America. Uh, and it was advice to would-be Americans. So uh, he said, uh, I just won't read all this. You may have a little trouble. Uh, we don't care about uh, birth. Uh, uh, if a foreigner comes and he has any useful art, he is welcome. And if he exercises it and behaves well, he will be respected. But a mere man of quality who on that account wants to live upon the public by some office or salary will be despised and disregarded. The people have a saying, the American people, God Almighty, Oh, you could be a mechanic, husband and a mechanic. The people have a saying, God Almighty is himself a mechanic. So we're a, a nation of practical common sense. Uh, so that sounds like maybe that is the American dream, but doesn't have the inspirational quality, right? Uh, ben Franklin was a good writer, but he, didn't, he missed on this one. <laughs> he didn't mention the American dream. Well, here's about the German, uh, a German art, a book in 1851. It's a similar idea about um, why you as a German might want to move to America. I have to rush through these. Sorry if you don't have time to read all this. The Canadian dream. Actually, nobody says the Canadian dream. I, think, I couldn't find it. Because they don't, they don't want to be that derivative from America. But of course, they have the American dream too. 
because they're, they have a similar quote. I hope I'm not offending any Canadians present, but there is a book on national dreams written by a Canadian, and he talks about things that are distinctively Canadian, the CBC, universal health care, etc. Then he talks about spiritual things, the conquest of the North. All that territory out there, even though we haven't visited it, it's a window that opens out to the infinite, onto the potential future. So there is some Canadian difference to the dream. The Canadian West as a paradise where newcomers, newcomers feel every opportunity to achieve a good life. It sounds like the American dream. Again, I don't want to offend Canadians, but we're kind of in this together. Uh, but the real, I, I mentioned that the, the real origin of American dream might be from China. Uh, at least Chinese are claiming. See, they have the, they're the only country that can claim they started it. And I'm not sure whether this is right. You have to evaluate. I'm trying to still research this. But uh, Zheng Xixiao uh, was a um, Chinese poet and artist from the Song Dynasty. And uh, I can't, I, I should, I asked my Chinese student to tell me what this says. I shouldn't put things up that I have, I have no idea. If this is obscene, my apologies. <laughs> but uh, this, is a, this is a hand manuscript from Zheng Xixiao. Uh, so what is the Chinese dream? I, I, the Wikipedia has an entry about it and says that uh, it was, this is quoting Wikipedia, came before the concept of the American dream was invented. So maybe we stole this from China. But I also, I have to do more research on this, but I think that what happened, uh, Zheng Xixiao was writing right at the time of the Mongol conquest of China. The Mongols were taking over and they were destroying Chinese culture. So he was looking back at the past in China, in the Tang Dynasty or other times when there, were, uh, there was an efflorescence of Chinese culture. And that was the China dream is to get back to that path. Also, uh, it's been recently reinterpreted by um, uh, uh, President Xi uh, and quoting him, the Chinese dream, dare to dream, work assiduously to fulfill the dreams and contribute to the revitalization of the nation. Uh, I have to find out, I'm going to go to China, see if I can talk to them next month about the China dream. But, uh, but something, I, I think this is, something like this is driving the Chinese economy. They have this vision that there's something great is coming for China and that tends to be a self-fulfilling prophecy. By the way, we have Robert Merton here, whose father coined, an old friend of mine, I just spotted him in there, his father coined the term self-fulfilling prophecy in around 1940. Um, not you, you were kind of young, <laughs> born. Uh, so I think saying things like this, if they're believable, if somehow they, they are in an epidemic coercion, can be a self-fulfilling prophecy. Uh, here's another book, recent book on the Chinese dream uh, that says that uh, it's gotten consumerist. And it, uh, this is head, heading toward my talk about transformation. These dreams start out lofty and they, you know, Zheng Xixiao, I can't say it right, uh, was a poet and an artist. He wasn't crass commercial, uh, but that's what happens as these things proliferate. The French dream, La Rêve Française, uh, uh, François Hollande wrote this book, former president of France. 
It's a dream of progress, equality, justice, a dream of sharing, a dream of collective strength, and individual destinies that unite la France. Uh, so, uh, you know, it's funny. He's really adopting the French dream. Uh, but you, you, you have to figure out why your country did it first. Uh, because you can't be just copying an American dream. That doesn't sound right. So he traces it back to 1789. So maybe it started in France. Uh, I'm not sure. Now, the Russian dream. I've asked a couple of my Russian friends, you ever heard the phrase Russian dream? And they said, there is no Russian dream. <laughs> but uh, I, I searched, uh, I, uh, the, the Russian was Ruskaya Miechta. I searched on that on Google, and I did come up with a website by Ilya Varlamov uh, about the Russian dream. And then I asked another Russian friend, and he said, I've never heard of Varlamov. You're wasting your time. This is just some blogger. All right, but uh, anyway, he is a blogger writing in Russian to Russian people. And he says, how are we similar to Americans? We too have a national dream. But talk isn't about aspirations to happiness or intentions to have a brilliant career. We dream about exactly what the majority of Americans already have, a detached single-family home. <laughs> and he says, this is quoting him again, why don't Russians massively move to detached single-family homes? It's expensive. So uh, then he, these are his pictures. So here is what he claims is an ideal Russian neighborhood. This is what Russian people want. You see these homes, uh, they have, all of them have a nice lot and yard. Every one is different. Some of them look kind of uh, romantic or uh, art, works of art. That's what they want. What do they have? This is what they have, <laughs> according to Varlamov. Uh, I may be quoting disaffected, angry Russians. I have one more quote from an angry Russian. This is Alexei Navalny, who is running for president. Now, you may know that Russia is having a presidential election uh, next month. And uh, Mr. Navalny is not running because uh, the Russian government disqualified him because he committed a felony, I think. Uh, whether he really did is very contentious. But he's, not, he's still campaigning, even though he can't run. So here he is. This is in Russia. This is recently. And he, he's, they let him hold rallies. They, they just uh, harass him. Uh, and they arrest people who show up at it. But basically, they're letting him do it. So he is still campaigning for president. Uh, and here he is talking to other Russians. And this is what he says to them. The idea that we are destined to always live in poverty is deeply ingrained in people's minds in Russia. Millions of people think that to expect to live well in Russia is ridiculous, that Russia is for sad people. That is our main problem, and the goal of my campaign is to conquer it. Uh, so I'm getting a feeling that the Russian dream uh, is not a place to look for inspiration. Um, maybe Navalny is a source of inspiration. Uh, let's see. Anyway, I want to get back to the original American dream. This is uh, just an ad for the book in 1931. Uh, and so it's inspirational. It's idealistic. We have a long and arduous road to travel if we are to re realize our American dream. It's a book about the future, uh, hope and promise of mankind, big think, idealistic. It generated a lot of talk among intellectuals at first. The book is interesting. 
it, it's a whole history of the United States and American character. Um, and things happened after that. It started to spread. For example, George O'Neill, who is still today a famous playwright, wrote a poem called The American, not a poem, a play called uh, The American Dream. And it's about an American family, multi-generations family, family. And it's not, it's kind of degenerating. It's, it's, something's going wrong with the American dream. Uh, oh, by the way, I didn't put it in the slides, but Edward Albee in the 1960s also wrote a play about the American dream. And it was also skeptical. It was about consumerism taking over and people getting uh, vulgar pleasures instead of something meaningful. Uh, but it, it, it was the, dominated by intellectuals for, for years. Here's a novel called The American Dream. Uh, 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 and uh, it's a chronicle of the thralls and of America that captures the time-richened American dream, the dream that burned brighter as it moved toward the West. I, I don't, but, but I'm going to come to the transformation. Another decade goes by, and this is what you see. Ads for houses. So we, uh, it is a typically American dream. When a man marries and when children arrive, he wants to give him a place that they can really call their own. So the American dream has become consumerism. Um, oh, here's another ad. I didn't uh, note the year, but it said 11. They're advertising 11% financing. So you know this is when interest rates were high. Um, but it, it's, again, building the American dream for 29 years. But it's a, it's a development that they're advertising. It looks, and it looks like it's just fun. You have a night date. You have a golf course nearby. Uh, I think somehow Truslow Adams is turning over in his grave at this point. Um, so um, now another funny thing happened, and this relates to my work uh, with Chip and Annie. It's about bubbles in the housing market. So uh, when I look back in the whole history of the United States, I see the American dream. Uh, these... Um, Oh, this is about, there's an emphasis on home speculation, worrying about home prices and talk about where they're going. Uh, it used to be farmland they talked about, not homes. Now, you'll see home prices mentioned here, but if you go back and read the articles or the books, in the early 19th century, when they said home prices, it meant something completely different. They were talking, they had high tariffs in those days, there were home prices and there were foreign prices for the same commodity. The home prices would be different because of the wedge driven between them and the foreign prices. So they're not talking about home prices. People didn't think that you'd buy, generally, they sometimes did, but they generally didn't think that you'd buy a home as an investment. Hey, if you're going to, why would you do that? Uh, you, you would buy raw land. It's much more direct uh, than... Houses require all kinds of care and maintenance, and they go out of style, they tear them down. Don't bother with that. Buy an empty land. And so it was a, a small fraction of the population that were speculating in land. Most people didn't speculate at all. But now it's become a participant where everyone wants, most people have a home, and everyone's worried about home prices. So uh, uh, farm prices, by the way, were volatile. So here is the blue line is... The price of a, um, no, I'm sorry, the green line is the price per acre of a, of, of a farm. And uh, the blue line is net farm income. It's the amount of money that you'd make, the average farmer make, well, the total farmers make. 
There's no relation between the price of farm through time and the net farm income. But uh, they're, they just, I think farm prices are going through bubbles and bursts uh, with, as narratives change. I can explain this one sort of. This is a little facile. Why, why, uh, what was happening here? Uh, there was some uh, food shortage uh, that pushed farm income. Uh, far, agricultural prices spiked. And then with a lagged response, we see a boom here in farm prices. This is around the time that Jay Forrester and others at the Club of Rome put out a study called, uh, what was the title of that? Um, Limits to Growth. Limits to Growth, yeah. See, Bob Merton is here to help me. It's exactly, I need an economist. Limits to Growth. I think there was a, a panic about overpopulation and running out of food. And it led to, a, with a lag, another epidemic in the land price market. Here is the S&P Case-Shiller Home Price Indices for four cities. And here is Boston. Uh, since 1987 until now. Uh, and they've all gone through uh, a pretty substantial increase. Uh, uh, this is, in real terms, corrected for inflation. So they more than doubled between the 1990s and, uh, or maybe they tripled, uh, uh, and 2008. And then they peaked and then came down with the, with the financial crisis. Somehow this is related to the American dream. The, the, uh, it's a complicated story, and I don't want to oversimplify it, but we were getting increasingly speculative about housing and talking all the time about it. Now, I'm almost out of time. I have more to say. Than, I'm actually writing a book also about this. <laughs> so in a year's time, I'm going to run out of time for my slides, but this is home prices in the United States from 1890 to the present. Uh, and uh, you can see how they've gotten more volatile. Not because underlying thing, building costs, population, or interest rates have gotten more volatile. Home prices didn't go up between 1890 and 1990. Almost not at all. People think that they're going up. This is part of the narrative. They're just going up all the time. Uh, they look different than farm prices. Farm prices are primarily land. Uh, we've also gotten an attraction to condominiums. I think what happened was when the American dream was transformed, people wanted, who lived in apartments wanted to be part of the American dream. So they thought, how can we fix this? Well, let's just define a new legal term so you now own your apartment in a, one of those big apartment buildings. Uh, so this just shows that uh, newspaper ads for homes went up uh, more recently. It used to be ads for land for sale. The government has intervened to stop bubbles in land prices. There were bubbles, in, notably the Florida land bubble in 1926. Uh, there was a lot of fraudulent selling of Florida land to out-of-staters who wanted to invest in land because we're running out of land uh, now is the time. Florida is all being bought up now in 1926. You better hurry or you won't be able to buy Florida land. wasn't true. You can still buy Florida land. It's not so expensive. Uh, but uh, now we, the government uh, has uh, created an act of uh, Congress to make it hard to sell land. So we've switched to houses. Uh, the Dodd-Frank Act put the uh, ILSA, the Land Sales Full Disclosure Act, under the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which is now being pulled back under our new president. Uh, so uh, 
as home prices go up, people start, this is work with is Annie and Chip now, that as, as home prices go up, so do people tend to agree more that homes are the best investment. So we're, we're starting to, the, the, the narrative interacts with home prices, there's feedback. So uh, as home prices go up, we hear more stories about, uh, about uh, housing as the best investment. It's not even true. The same thing happens with the stock market. This is from my book, Irrational Exuberance. But stocks are the best investment for long-term holders who can buy and hold through the ups and downs of the market. Agreement with that statement always goes up after the market has gone up. People do it at the wrong time. So now the second transformation is uh, loss of optimism for the American dream. It's partly because of seeing prices go up or perceiving them as going up. We worry that we won't be able to afford a home. And we're afraid of immigrants stealing our jobs and fear of automation. But this kind of disrupts the, the American dream was, you're a mechanic coming in from Europe. You'll find opportunity in America because of your skills. But people don't trust their skills anymore. They think that there'll be some uh, machine that will fix the things automatically. So here's the beginning of the transformation. This is a newspaper article from 1981. Uh, it's talking about somewhere along the way our attitudes have changed. Uh, we, we have progressed from those young people who can get what they deserve to those poor young people who can't get ahead today. We can't afford the basic American dream, a home. Well, home prices uh, haven't been continuing going up, but this is a narrative. It doesn't have to be true. Uh, in fact, it's gotten easier to own a home because this was back when interest rates were 11% or 15% on a mortgage. Um, so, uh, oh, so this is something that Annie and I have been working on <laughs> lately. Uh, people are talking about, uh, there's a sense that it's impossible to get a home anymore. Uh, how can you think that? Well, apparently, one part of the narrative is that people are asking, they'll put out, when they list their home for sale, they'll, they'll put out an asking price, and there'll be a whole bunch of buyers who will come in and offer more than the asking price. This is a funny phenomenon. Why is this happening? Why didn't they just ask more initially? Uh, well, I might be misquoting it. You, you are telling me, Annie, that realtors explain to you, don't ask too much. You want a bidding war over your home. It's part of the game. I don't know if I'm quoting you right. I got that from you anyway. But I know I, people play games. And one of the games is to hope for a bidding war when you sell your house. It happens now. But did it happen before? Well, I search in, on ProQuest news and newspapers for above the asking price. And you know what? Nobody ever uttered the word. How, how can that be? So I wondered about, so I, I didn't, they have asking prices? So I looked in newspapers, and sure enough, they would say asking price. Sometimes they'd say uh, uh, call for a quote or something, but off, they would talk, they use the word asking price. They just never sold above, they never noticed it. It wasn't the narrative. Um, so um, so uh, anyway, this is uh, the Boston Globe here. Uh, more... Uh, Again, it's all this, it, 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 this is, by the way, uh, in my other book, Fishing for Fools with George Akerlof, which uh, you mentioned, uh, we talk about uh, how it is that various businesses have to generate excitement one way or the other. And if you're a realtor, you have to generate excitement. If you're a newspaper writer for the Boston Globe, which is a newspaper I admire very much, actually, but economic pressures force them 
to, to generate excitement. Uh, and it, they, were, they were talking about it. I, I didn't write down the data. This is uh, sometime in the 1980s, I think. Uh, and that this, that, that it just sounds bad that people are offering more than the asking price. They don't consider for the moment that it's, and it's a trick. Uh, this is Katy Perry. This is 2017. You can find her, look, uh, search on uh, YouTube on Chain to the Rhythm. This is her version of the American dream. It's a fun ride at an amusement park where you get into a house and the house, <laughs> the house drops. So, um, so we now have a deliberate, uh, with the, the latest transformation, I'm, I'm repeating myself, but we have a new narrative and it's a scary narrative uh, about loss of commitment to policies that redistribute to the poor. Every man for himself atmosphere uh, that's, I, I'm thinking of Donald Trump. I don't want to make this a political speech, but uh, he talks about winners versus losers. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's, it's sort of a host, hostile... I wish we could get back to the American dream spirit. Maybe that will be the end of it. Uh, yeah, this is my last slide. Uh, I, I kind of like James Truslow Adams. I recommend uh, you buy the book <laughs> and read it. Uh, and that rep represents a spirit that it would be nice to get back to. So I'll just uh, stop now. Are there any questions? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you.